If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Let's bow for prayer. Father, as we open your word this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to think about and consider the issues that we're dealing with here. That we'll be thinking about life. We'll be thinking about what it means to be alive. That we will be thinking about death. That we'll be thinking about what it means to be dead. That we'll think about, is there life after death? If there is, what is it? How do we know? I pray that any apprehensions or fears that we may have, that they would rise to the surface, that we would question those things that cause us to have doubts, that we would then be in search of the answers, that we will indeed turn to you and your word, that we may understand, that we may have knowledge. I pray, Father, that If there are any here today who their doubts are more than just something that's brought about because of the uncomfortableness of of the subject. But if there is true reason for them to doubt or to maybe have fear, I pray that your spirit would not leave them alone. I pray that they would be bothered by these things until they come to understand and embrace all that the gospel of Christ is and what it represents. For those, Father, who are believers who may still be apprehensive about death, may have some fear about death, I pray that with their whole heart they will turn to what the Word of God says, that they will embrace all that the Word of God says, and that they will truly be comforted. For some of us, Father, we may, it may be important for us to be troubled for a while. It may be that even though we are hearing these things and maybe even better understanding these things, we are still disturbed. I pray, Lord, that we would not just seek to put aside our thoughts or our fears and pretend that they are not there. But, Father, we would face them squarely, that we would seek your wisdom that we may understand why these things may be lingering, why the doubts may be lingering, that they may be addressed. But I also ask, Lord, that as we come to better understand the issues that we're dealing with, I also pray that it will bring about in us a deeper and a greater appreciation for life, for your love for us, for those that we love and those who love us. And Father, it would deepen our understanding of life and what it is that gives meaning to life. We pray that we would be deeply comforted. We pray that we become very different people and that our approach to life and the way we live life, the way we think about life, that that would all be changed for the better. 
And so, Father, we thank you again so much for your word and for the truth and for the blessing that your word brings. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. This passage, along with several others that we have opened with over the last several weeks, are written not only for our comfort, but to give us an understanding about life, about death, about what is to come. As I mentioned before, we don't really have time to kind of go over and review the things we've covered so far. Even though there will be a little bit of overlap, let me begin with this. N.T. Wright, he's a Christian scholar. Some of the things he writes you have to be careful of. Other things he writes are really very good. But he has an 800-page book on the resurrection of the Son of God. It's a thorough study of the biblical text uh, in their historical context. It's really good. And he talks about some things we mentioned last week. And he talks about the Pharisees and what they believed and things that you see in, in Acts chapter 23 and the position that Paul held when it came to the resurrection. And he summarizes all of these things and says this, Christianity appears as a united sub-branch of Pharisaic Judaism, which affirms the two-stage sequence of intermediate state and final resurrection. In other words, what he's saying is, is what the Pharisees believed and what the Christians believe, it's the same. That when an individual dies who's a believer, they will be in a conscious state of bliss. The soul and the body are separated, but that person remains alive. And they're in this state until the resurrection when the body and the soul are reunited. There's all kinds of questions that come up about some of that, and we will eventually get to some of those. But this scholar, through all his work, is just basically saying that, that they had that right, and that is what we believe. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Paul taught, and that's what Paul believed. Through the years, there's been arguments that have come from philosophy and science to undermine belief in a conscious intermediate state. Remember that when we speak of philosophy and science, philosophy and science isn't all wrong. But often what happens is when you are reading about science or you're reading certain philosophers, it's important to know where they're coming from. Because what they either already believe sometimes will shape with their conclusions. We, we try to be objectively honest. Most, many people do, but we don't, we don't always do that well. And sometimes individuals aren't intending to be objectively honest because they're convinced they already know what the truth is and they're going to make whatever they're thinking about fit. And so we have to keep those things in mind. 
But Thomas Hobbes, who was a philosopher in the, uh, he was born in 1588, died in the late 1600s. He claimed that the soul result, results from the body, from the movement of the parts of the body uh, and, uh, and, and mind. In other words, that because of our moving and living, that kind of that's where the soul kind of comes from. Spinoza, uh, another philosopher, uh, argued that the soul and body are inseparable aspects of a single substance. Now, these men, basically, who do not believe in the Bible, they do not believe in the God of the Bible, are simply denying that there is a soul or that there's a spiritual aspect of man that uh, can be alive or dead, that can exist separate from the body, that it's just one thing. And so basically, the, the, the goal, one of the goals is to kind of debunk everything the Bible says. And they, they're not going to say that. But basically, the Bible says is there's such a thing as salvation. There's such a thing as heaven and hell. Uh, man's going to be judged for his sins, or man's going to be uh, saved by the grace of God, and those who are saved by the grace of God go to heaven, and those who are not are going to go to hell. Basically, what they're saying is, oh, no, no, that's true, because it's this. That, that's really what we're getting at when it comes to uh, the conclusion of what they're talking about. Uh, when it comes to evolution, remember, evolution is more than just this idea that people came from monkeys. Yeah, that's part of it, but it's much more than all of that. Uh, and there's a whole philosophy that's connected to it. It affects many aspects of life, many aspects of, of how people view life, understand life, understand religion, all those kinds of things. So evolution implied that consciousness gradually emerged from matter as organisms became more complex. So therefore, evolution claims to explain human mental and spiritual capacities without dealing with the soul. In other words, if we all started in a mud pit somewhere, we weren't really thinking about things. And then as those cells kind of multiplied, and somehow, um, miraculously, which I guess it really can't be miraculous because there's no such thing as miracles, according to them, but somehow, uh, through time and chance, which is really nothing, but through all of that, somehow... Life came into being, which eventually led to a life form, humans, who had the ability to think and reflect, what have you. And so basically, as a result of all of that, there is no soul. There is no creation of the person. There is no soul. This idea that God breathed life into Adam, all of that is just a bunch of bunk because that's not what we are. We are, again, just a higher form, higher elevated form of animal. We're just different than the animals to a degree, but not really. We're more advanced in a sense, um, but uh, again, part of that thinking is to eliminate the idea of a soul. If there's no soul, then there's no need for God. There is no judgment. All there is is the here and now. And many of these individuals, that is what they believe. There's only the here and now. As I've said, there have been those who've tried to find ways, uh, Christians have tried to find ways to take these things that are being said because it sounds right or they sound smart, it sounds intellectual, and say, oh, wow, this is not what the Bible says. And again, it's kind of the idea, not in every case, but the idea is that if you believe the Bible and you believe the whole Bible, that's kind of an adolescent thing. It's kind of a, uh, an immature thing. And if you're mature, you put away that and you move in this direction. That's kind of the mindset and the attitude that's portrayed in our society. And it's, it's one that's very strong, and, and people, we succumb to it. And so we feel embarrassed to state or just to simply say, yeah, I do believe the Bible, and I, and I, you know, I believe in heaven and hell. And that, so that does affect us. So there are those that are trying to find a way to take what is given to us in the area of philosophy and science, which is supposedly given to us as being true, and then kind of marrying it with what we see in the Bible and maybe coming to a quote-unquote 
more mature understanding of the scripture. And so people have, a, have done that. And so there's one, uh, it's, it's a, a belief called emergentism. Basically, the idea is something emerges. That is the soul, the personality and the mind gradually emerges from the physical body and the brain during normal development. So they've taken this whole idea of evolution, shrunk it down to when your wife is pregnant, that fetus doesn't have a soul. And then as they, when they're born, and they then begin to grow and develop personality, that's when the soul develops. And for some of them, that's a very convenient thing to hold on to. And that's why you hear individuals, when they get into the whole abortion thing, they don't talk about it being a person. They'll say, it's not a person yet. It doesn't have a personality yet. And, and all that's going to emerge later. So if you abort that, then it's just a fetus. It's not a human being. Now, that's wrong. There's a, you know, the, the logical fallacies are, are uh, myriad, there's a myriad of them in all of that, but that's what people sometimes do to kind of ease their conscience. And, of course, we've already looked at many times before that the Bible clearly teaches that it is a person, uh, period. And this idea of the soul, they are a soul that has a body at that point, and it's not something that emerges later. Uh, their personality, we may observe and see their personality emerge, uh, but the fact that somehow they're not a person before, that is wrong. But there are those who try to say that. And then they'll say, that as this then happens, and this soul kind of takes place, that somehow God is going to sustain that soul even when the body dies. So you just get this weird thing that takes place. Uh, and then there are those who somehow say, well, no, it doesn't really happen that way. Uh, that somehow, what it, you know, some, some form of physicalism, that the soul and the mind are generated just by the brain, and so it's just a brain thing, and what they still end up denying is that there's no intermediate state, that when you die, you die. So if we do not have separable souls, then what happens when we die? Well, for many non-believers, again, they just believe then that's it. There is nothing. You just cease to exist. You are no more. It's a fact of life. And some will say, you just got to grow up and get over it. And that's not helpful. There's no answers in that. And it also is something that is very, uh, I think, uh, is hopeless. In other words, so then if that is true, then what is it that gives life meaning? Does it really then matter what we do? If that's it, then does it matter? And I think philosophically speaking, it doesn't matter. If there is no life after death, if there is no God, if there is no judgment, then what does it matter what you do? It doesn't matter. You can boil it down to whatever makes you happy. So if, what, if eating your neighbor makes you happy, tough for him. You know, that's just, there's, there's, you know, there's, you know, how are we going to agree on what gives life meaning? You really can't. Uh, someone's always going to be very disappointed in the end, especially if that's what you want to do. But there are those who say, when it comes to this, that somehow um, that uh, there is an immediate resurrection, that somehow your personality is regenerated by God, and there's kind of, there's just no real answers out there. Uh, you just kind of somehow exist uh, in some kind of space thing. Maybe it's a space-time continuum. I don't know. Uh, but that's kind of what's going on. So turn to Matthew. We're going to look at two passages uh, fairly rapidly. We've mentioned them before, so we're going to kind of go through them again and then move on to uh, some, some more things, uh, more specifics uh, that I think will help us a great deal 
in thinking through all this and really understanding all that the Bible says about death and, and what happens after we die. So Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a, on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So Christ's transfiguration was a preview of his glory. It was confirmation that he was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah appeared in heaven, uh, uh, from heaven. We can, we can at least say they were in some visible form because these guys recognized them, even though they'd never met them before. They, they knew who they were. They, they didn't say, uh, we're seeing some floating masses out there, but we don't know. They knew exactly who they were. Uh, and so I believe they had some kind of a body. Uh, I do believe it shows that there is some kind of, there is a conscious existence that follows death because they see Moses and Elijah and they are alive. This isn't some trick that Jesus is, is, you know, playing on them. These guys appear and they're having a conversation with Jesus. Jesus never once tells Peter, Peter, you you dummy, we're not going to make a tabernacle to these guys, they don't exist. He doesn't do that. Uh, they don't quite understand what's going on, but he doesn't do that. Luke wrote that Moses and Elijah talked with Jesus about his coming death, so there were some uh, specifics concerning the conversation. Again, Moses and Elijah are key representatives of the law and the prophets. Uh, they lived through two major periods of Old Testament miracles. They were both messianic forerunners. Um, we know that Elijah didn't die. There are some who believe that Moses didn't die. I I think Moses died because the New Testament talks about there being an argument over the body of Moses. So I, I think he died. Uh, but you may still find some books or maybe older books where people will say that uh, Moses didn't die or they're not sure Moses died because his death isn't really recorded. Uh, but I, I think that they're wrong on that. But nonetheless, that, that's what you'll, you'll, you'll see. But in the end, we have these two guys who have been, lived in history a long time ago and they are there they exist they are recognized they're having a conversation and so there's a there's a lot here that is communicated and this story is written as if it is a historical event this is not a dream it doesn't say at the end and then jesus woke up from dreaming or peter woke up from a dream and they didn't talk about them having a vision that this event took place um and so it, it happened in history in matthew 22 in verse 32, uh, Jesus says this, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read uh, what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In this instance, uh, the Pharisees are trying to uh, get Jesus, to kind of trap him into saying something they can use against him. And so they present this problem. And there was this argument that had gone on between the Sadducees and the Pharisees for a long time, mainly over the idea of a resurrection. And the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees did. So the Sadducees, uh, believing that Jesus was in line with the Pharisees, which he was in his beliefs, they then present this problem to him. And the problem is, is we have a lady who gets married to a man, and he dies, and, they, and he, when he dies, she's childless. And because it is a Jewish family, based on Old Testament law, uh, then this man's brother has to marry her and uh, when she gets pregnant, the first child is considered the child of the dead husband. Well, in this really r radical story that the uh, Sadducees are going through, basically she marries all seven brothers, they all die. 
She might have been the first black widow. I don't know. Uh, she didn't eat the dead, but, I mean, there's some stuff going on here. But anyway, so, but then they asked the question, you know, whose wife is she in heaven? And, of course, Jesus, being the brilliant man that he was, uh, basically uh, calls them on it, knowing they don't believe in a resurrection. He begins by stating that in heaven, uh, no one is married and, and no one is given in marriage. Um, some people have drawn from the conclusion that somehow we become sexless, no, I think we still have our gender. We're not, we don't engage in procreation because that's no longer necessary. Uh, you will no longer be married when you get to heaven, but that doesn't mean that your spouse will be a stranger. What happens, I believe, when we get to heaven is that all of us will be closer. Our closest relationship now should be husband and wife. When you get to heaven, your relationship with everyone there will be even closer than that. So it's going to be fabulous. Now, some of you are thinking, well, my marriage isn't all that good. I don't say how that's fabulous. Well, you know, that's because you're in sin. But uh, the thing is, is that it, it, you know, marriage is supposed to be great, and it is, and heaven's going to be even better. And so he calls them out on that, and then he says this to them. Uh, uh, makes a statement about God. God is, I am the God of Abraham. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. So he speaks of the dead, uh, but speaks of God in the present tense. And that's the idea. So, again, the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in an afterlife, they asked Jesus about this. And so the repetition of, he is the God of Abraham, he is the God of Isaac, he is the God of Jacob, uh, the repetition of that is done, again, in the present tense, coupled with the negative, because he is now God, he's not God of the dead, and that he is no longer, but he's the God of the living. They are part of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. So again, that's why he doesn't say he was, he was the God. He is the God. And uh, that, is the, that is who we believe in. So he is the God of these men, the God of the living. In this context, the living must be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're alive. Only living people can have a God. So that implies they are still alive, since it would mean very little to say that God is the God of dead men. So the point, again, is he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If God is the God of the patriarchs, they are, by implication, alive after their death. And thus the ground is prepared for the reality of the future resurrection. So now when it comes to this, and trying to filter out and figure out all that the Bible really says on these things, because remember before we've said that many believers, at least in our country, many believers will say, yes, I believe when my grandmother dies, because she's a Christian, she will be in heaven. Or you may sadly say, yes, I believe that my friend who died, he didn't know the Lord, and I just don't like to think about that too often because I know that he's in hell. How do you know that those things are true? And what we often say is, well, I mean, I know it's in the Bible somewhere. And, and we can't maybe think of a verse at that moment. And sometimes individuals have, maybe because of a close family member dying, have kind of thumbed through their Bible, just kind of randomly looking for something, and they're not really sure what it says, and come up with all kinds of ideas. And so we want to, there's, so there's going to be some detailed study that we're going to do, kind of like a Bible study, so that we can bring some clarity uh, to what it is the Bible actually states about these things. And so we're going to have to talk about hell. We're going to have to talk about, there's a, a word that many of you heard, it's in the Old Testament called Sheol. We're going to have to talk about Hades. Uh, and we're going to try to come to a very strong conclusion as to what the Bible teaches about those things and then have a better understanding of what we would call the intermediate state and also the final state of the dead. So in the Bible, there are 13 different terms 
used for what we will call, we're going to call this the unseen world. When you speak of hell, you speak of Hades, you speak of heaven, that's that those places exist, but they're unseen. We can't see them. So there's 13 different terms that the Bible uses for those places. Now, when you do these kinds of studies, you, know, you always have to go back to the Hebrew and Greek because in English, sometimes English will translate two or three different Greek or Hebrew words the same way. Whether, they, whether they're assuming it's the same thing or what have you, the point is, is that if you want to be correct and make sure you really are able to categorize these things separately and understand what the scripture says, you're going to have to separate them out. So the first word we're going to look at, uh, and the only word I think we're going to look at today, is the word Sheol. The word Sheol is used 64 times in the Old Testament. And so I, I don't, we don't have time to read all these different verses. I do think I have a lot of the references down there that you can uh, look at. And if you have like a Strong's Concordance, or if you have access to the internet, you can go to a Strong's Concordance, and you can look up the word Sheol, and you can look up all these references uh, in the Old Testament to uh, double-check all these things. But we wanna, I want to kind of share with you what we draw from what the verses say. That's always what we want to do. Always, well, you always want to draw what the verses actually say and categorize them first. That will always lead to maybe an understanding or interpretation of things, but what we don't want to do is have a firm set of beliefs first and then try to always fit these verses into certain things. We don't want to assume we know what these verses say. Let's see what they say and then try to come to our conclusions. So what's important is, is that oftentimes, and I know there's been times in the past where I've said this incorrectly, that when you see the word Sheol, it's just talking about the grave. Well, we're going to see that's not the case. And that's very important because if all it means is grave, then a lot of things change or certain things aren't going to make sense. So the first thing to remember about the word Sheol is Sheol was the place that both the righteous and the unrighteous expected to go when they died. Okay, so Sheol was a place where both the righteous and the unrighteous expect to go when they die. The 89th Psalm David writes about God's faithfulness. He praises God for his faithfulness. But when you get down to verse 38, David begins to deal with what appears to be a gap between the promise of God and reality. And that is seen by his phrase, How long, O Lord? So in these verses, David knows that God will work out his promises in his own time. It could be a thousand years. It could be whatever it is. So David simply reminds God that a man's lifespan is short. Man cannot keep himself from the grave or from Sheol. So Psalm 89, beginning in verse 46, it reads this way. This way, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember that my span of life is for what vanity, uh, for what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, Selah. Now remember that when you come across the word Selah um, in the Bible, it's not really necessary to read it. You can. But the word Selah really means that you're supposed to stop at that point and think about what you just read. That's, that's normally what it means. That's why sometimes uh, when we're reading the Psalms, maybe in church, sometimes you, you may, somebody may be up here and they'll read and they'll come to that word Selah. They may not say it, but then you'll notice that they kind of pause a little longer than normal. That would be proper. The point is, is to reflect on what's been said and then move on. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard because it does use the word Sheol. It doesn't, just, it doesn't use a, another word 
um, for grave or death or whatever. It, it uses the word, so it makes it a little clearer. So here he's asking the question uh, about this. All right, so again, all we know is that Sheol was a place where both the righteous and the unrighteous expected to go when they died. Secondarily, Sheol was a place that was more dreadful for the unbeliever than for the believer. So I'm going to read from, from Job 24, verse 19. It says, Drought and heat consume the snow waters. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. So the statement here is simply this. is Sheol is a place where people go, but here he's talking about drought and heat. And in the same way that drought and heat consumes snow or the snow waters, that's what Sheol does to those who have sinned. So it appears to be this, this is not a good place to go. So the righteous and the unrighteous go, but here Sheol, for the non-believer in a way, is pictured as a threat. Turn to Psalm 49. I'm going to read the first 15 verses. Psalm 49, and uh, hear what is written. Psalm 49, beginning in verse 1. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those who after them who approve their words. Then there's Selah. Think about it. And then he says, As sheep are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So again, we have Sheol is a place where both the righteous and the unrighteous go. And then we have this uh, description that's given, where for the the non-righteous, it appears to be a bad place. You don't want to go there. And here we have this message of hope for the one who's trusting in God. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32, beginning in verse 21, it says, They have made me jealous with with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So, I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol. And consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the mountains of the, the foundations of the mountains. Now there's some other verses we can look at as well, but we won't. But basically, there are different levels or compartments in Sheol. 
So we have a place that everyone goes. It's a place of dread for the non-believer. There's hope for the believer. Here it talks about the lowest part of Sheol as opposed to being another part of Sheol. Uh, and again, when you begin to put all the scriptures together and then some things that are said in the New Testament, uh, there appears to be different levels or compartments in Sheol. And it, it, it'll become more and more clear as we move on. So I'm going to read uh, several single, uh, single passages, and this is, deals with the fourth thing, which is this. As to the direction of Sheol, it's always referred to as going down. Now, there are some who believe that somewhere in the innermost part of the earth is, is where Sheol is. I tend to lean that way. There's others who believe that it's out in the outer extremes of the universe. Well, whatever it is, when the Bible refers to it, it always talks about it being down. That's just what you observe. But let me just read a bunch of verses, and it says this, 7-9 of Job, Job 7-9, when a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. Job 21-13, they spend their days in prosperity, and suddenly they go down to Sheol. Psalm 30, verse 3. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. And Proverbs 15, 24. The path of life leads upward for the wise, that he may keep away from Sheol, which is below. Isaiah 14, verse 9. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. So it always appears to be in that direction. It's always talked about being down, going, going in that direction. And I do believe that uh, the way that most Jewish men would understand the Bible is uh, they do take the Bible literally, and they don't seek it to mean something else or even to be metaphoric unless it's clear from the context that that's what's intended. And so they would say, yep, that's where it is. It's down. Um, so whether you believe that or not, that's fine. Uh, you can still be a Christian and not believe that. Um, but I do believe that is where it's at, but I'm not going to uh, uh, hold anyone to that. But the fifth thing that's important is Sheol was always a place of consciousness. Right? The person knew where they were. They were there was an awareness, uh, and that's important. So when, when we talk about an individual dying, this idea that people soul sleep, which again used to be just something we would associate with Jehovah Witnesses, there are now individuals in the church who some, that's, that think in some kind of way that's what happens. That when a person dies, they're, they're just not conscious of anything, that they're sleeping, uh, and that they won't awaken until the resurrection. But like us, when we sleep, when you go to sleep at night, when you wake up in the morning, it only seems to be like what? Just a moment. And so that's kind of how they, they kind of justify that. I don't think they're correct, but that's, that's what they state. So they're not necessarily advocating becoming a Jehovah Witness. I'm just saying that it, that belief used to be primarily in that group, and now it because of philosophy and science and different things, it's kind of spread, uh, and maybe some forms of liberalism. Uh, there are those who begin to think that. And so that's why it is possible for you to have friends who may attend churches. You may have been at churches like this, where when they, when they begin to talk about death and what happens after death, the preacher might kind of hesitate. He might say, well, we don't really know. Or there are those that I respect that, you know, I have respect for these guys too, but this still doesn't mean they're not stupid. Uh, or that they're not dumb, or that they're not really taking the Bible for what it says. You know, we just disagree, and I think they're wrong. But the, but the idea is that you can have friends who are Christians, and as they get older or when they're facing disease, they may be a lot more afraid. In other words, there's not just an apprehensiveness. They're afraid because to them, death is you cease to exist for, at least for a while, and, and there's, there's some fear in that, and that's... 
we, need, we want to be able to comfort them and say, that's not what the Bible says. That's why, again, we, we made a big deal a couple weeks ago about the fact that where the Bible is, the place it holds in your mind is very important. If it's just a book among many, if it's just a book that you prefer among many, then it's difficult for your faith to be strengthened by what the Word of God says. It's never the idea that we have blind faith. This is a credible book. You have all the doubts you want. Check it out, and those doubts will be answered. But our faith stands on the reason from Scripture. And because I believe God. So it's not true because I believe it. It's true whether I believe this or not. But my faith, and in the area in particular facing death, I'm going to be strengthened and comforted because I'm being given the truth of what God says. And, and that would be true for anyone in any field. In other words, even if you have a doctor that you respect and trust, if you don't believe what he's telling you, like if, let's say he says, well, we found a tumor, but you're going to be fine. We can take it out. It's, it's not malignant. Da, 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 da. If you don't believe what he's telling you, you're not going to be comforted by what he says. You're going to be maybe rather nervous. But if, you, but if you have absolute confidence in him and confidence in what he says about what your tumor is and what they're going to be able to do, then you will be much more at ease. You may still be a little apprehensive to a degree, but you're not in fear. So it's not a magical thing. It's not that we're just trying to deny reality and pretend. This is, this is truth. There's substance here. And so I am feeding my soul the truth, the reality of what the Word of God says. And so I, as I understand this, and this permeates my mind, permeates my thinking, I am going to be comforted by this. Again, because we have different, we're different personality types, we've been walking with the Lord uh, for different lengths of time. Some of us have been through more difficulties than others. We will still be at different stages, so to speak. And so some of us may have still more apprehension than others, but there's very real comfort in this. And that's important for us to remember. Sheol was a place of consciousness. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 9. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you. He's talking about the king of Babylon. When you come, it arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made as weak as we. You have become like us. And then in Jonah, the book of Jonah, chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for a help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. Now, there was a uh, long-standing debate about what happened with Jonah when he got swallowed by, the, by this big fish. There, and when he was swallowed, he was alive. Some believe when he was there, he died. And, and that then when the fish vomited out, he was raised to life. Others believe that he was alive the whole time. I used to believe he was alive the whole time. I now believe that he died, uh, but that he was resurrected. Part of the reason for that is because you're conscious in Sheol. He's there, and he's praying, and he is brought back. Really no different uh, than when Samuel appears to Saul, uh, when Saul is, is seeking a medium. Uh, that's not some demon that appears Samuel appears, and both the witch and Saul aren't real happy when that happens. They, they bit off a little bit more than they could chew. Uh, so he was. So this is a place that's conscious. It's not normal for someone to come back from that, but it can happen. But so I believe that Jonah did die, and that the uh, this sign 
Remember Jesus said uh, to, the, to, to them when they were saying, you know, if you are, if you are the Messiah, you know, show us a sign. And he says, no sign will be given. Only an adulterous generation seeks, seeks a sign. But then he says that the only sign that would be given is the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? It's the sign of resurrection. And so when the fish vomited back out, he came to life and he went and preached. And, and uh, to me, that's not a, um, a hard thing to believe. God raised the dead and that's what happened. And, uh, but anyway... That is, so the idea there is that, that when a person is in Sheol, it is a place of consciousness. The sixth thing is that Sheol was not removed from God's jurisdiction. In other words, God is still the authority. God is present everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Job 25, beginning in verse 5. The, depra- the, the, the departed spirits tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him, and Abaddon has no covering. So when it comes to just this one term, remember that we have to go through several terms to get a full grasp of all that is out there and, and what happens after death. But the Bible speaks in all of these instances as if he's just dealing with fact. This is what happens. This is what it is. This is what man's afraid of. This is why. This is what God says. This is where God is. All of these things are true and real. So what we know, at least from this, is is this. Is that when a human being dies, that person will continue to live even though their body is dead. According to the teaching of the Old Testament on Sheol, they are going to a place where they are conscious and they are aware of where they are. And if they are of the unrighteous, it's not a good place. Now, obviously, this isn't everything. There's a great deal more. But I think, again, it's important for us to grasp what everything the Bible says. Because sometimes people say, well, the Bible contradicts itself. Well, it, it doesn't contradict itself. Sometimes things may appear to contradict. And then as we study and think about it, we realize, why does it know enough? Now I know that it doesn't contradict, and this is why. Uh, and so then we will have a better understanding. And I'm convinced that with a better, thorough, clear understanding, uh, then, then we will be the better off. Let me end with this. Um, I have, at times, uh, had to do a funeral for an individual where I have been doing a funeral in conjunction with another pastor. And that's normally just not a big deal. However, there's been a few times where um, I have done a funeral with um, a pastor, and I was really disappointed in uh, what the person said. Uh, he, he was a Christian. Um, Seemed to be solid all the way down. And here was my problem. He's talking about the death of, it was, we were burying a young man who uh, he was uh, in his very early 20s uh, when he died. Um, and so as he kind of gave his remarks, the preacher, he then talked about the near-death experiences that many people have had that, you, that we've read about. And talked about how they, you know, that this experience of floating over their body and this tunnel, this dark tunnel, the light at the end. And he was going through all of that. And, and the reason he was giving that story was he was using that as evidence that we can know that there is life after death and somehow from all of that bring comfort. And I'm thinking, so we're going to take at least the possible hallucinations of believers and non-believers, and we're going to put our faith in that as what we think happens to somebody when they die. That's horrible. Now, I felt stuck because this guy went first. 
And I, you know, I'm, and I didn't want to embarrass him, even though I was very strongly against everything he said. I thought it was horrible. However, the Lord in his graciousness, it's not really a good thing, it was a bad thing, but I ended up doing two more funerals with this individual. There was a, a two-year period where there was a, quite a few young people uh, that we both had an association with that died. So I insisted in each of those funerals that I go first. But then I would be short and he could close up. And then I made sure that when I got up there, I began by stating. Sometimes you'll hear individuals tell you a story about near-death experiences. And I explained in great detail about how that showed an absolute lack of faith in God and the Bible and that that is uh, a tragedy and that we just that there is an explanation for most of that. We can just throw that away. And besides, most of that goes against what the Bible says. And thank goodness we have the word of God. And my goal was simply to eliminate the possibility of him saying that. I wasn't trying to be mean, but truth is at stake, and that's important. And so... I was able to go first, and I did the same thing both times, and he didn't say a word about it. Uh, <laughs> someone said the first time <laughs> when I said that, they said he was like this, and when I started talking about how all that was a bunch of bunk, he went, <laughs> and uh, I eliminated half his sermon. But the point is, is that we don't depend upon those things, and you'd be amazed how many people, that when it comes to finding a way to deal with death and grieve, And I'm not saying that we shouldn't grieve when someone dies, because as believers, we should. We should hate death. However, we do not take our comfort in foolishness. And these weird stories that both believers and non-believers give, that really do, when you analyze them, contradict what the Bible says. I'm not going to base my belief in eternity on what some drunk sailor said happened when he was hit by a car. I'm just not going to do that. I, it's going to be this. And so I encourage you that we need to be stubborn about some of these things. Not to be mean, not to be cruel. And if we have friends who may take comfort in these things, it can sound mean when you pull the rug out from under them. But I think you need to do it. Don't, you don't need to do it to embarrass them. You, make, you can do it later privately. But you need to come to the matter of concern and say, You know, in this discussion the other day, I heard you say, I want you to know that I hope that you don't put your faith in that and take comfort from that. Because that really is, it's foolishness. We, We can depend and stand on the Bible. And you may help them. It may be they went in that direction because they're not really a believer. And you have opportunity to let them see your faith in the word of God. Keep in mind that there are many people out there I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing, but for for them, what they're looking for is they really want truth, but they want to hear truth from someone who really believes it. And we need to stand unashamedly on the truth of the word of God. And don't worry if they mock us or how they respond to us. We want to carefully, lovingly, firmly, accurately, and clearly explain to them what we know. And if there are some things you don't know and they ask you a question you can't answer, you can just say, you know, that is a great question. Even I want to know the answer to that. Let's get together in two weeks and I will see what I can find. And you can go back and dig or you may get on the phone and say, Bob, I need your help. That's okay. I've had those phone calls before or Tim or whoever. But we're more than happy to do that because the answers are there. And God wants us to know. And as we read, 
Nobody escapes death. It's kind of a drag to think about it a lot, so you don't have to think about it all the time. But we need to be prepared, and we want our friends to be prepared, and we want believers to be comforted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace. We pray, Lord, as we continue our study through your word, we pray you help us, Father, to, to grasp, to make sense, to be able to comprehend what the word of God says. We thank you, Lord, that the Bible is filled with the information that we need. And so we pray you help us to be able to digest it. We pray that our faith will be strengthened as we see over and over in the word of God, not only what you say, but the way that it is stated. It is stated as being categorically true and firm, that it is not a fairy tale, that it is not mythology, that it is not just a nice idea, that it is not some kind of psychological comfort that we can gain for a little while while we just live out our mundane existence, but that life is meant to be rich and full, and and that is why death is such a horrible and terrible blow, but also why we completely are happy and rest in the fact that Christ has conquered death, and we will conquer death. And so, Father, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, help to alleviate our fears, and use us, Father, in the lives of others. And so we thank you. We thank you so much, Father, for Christ and the marvelous gift of salvation. We thank you, Father, for those that we love with all of our heart that have gone on before us. Those who are believers, we will see them again. We thank you for that, Father. We thank you that if we precede those that we love in death, that we will be reunited again. Not because, Father, we just want it to happen. Not because we think we're basically good. Because we know that we are powerless to make that happen. But you, in your grace and your kindness and your goodness, with a power that cannot be opposed by any, has made it so. And so we thank you. And so we ask now, Father, that you would dismiss us and you would cause us to reflect on these things throughout the week. In Christ's name, amen.